0: Me shut. it is one minute no it's nine o'clock so we're getting started right away if you'll bow your heads close your eyes as they shut those doors we'll get started heavenly father we love you <clears throat> praise you glorify your name as we continue to study your word and we continue to look at what you say about your son's return this should inside of us stir ab- stir up in us Praise and honor and glory, excitement, but this is all about your glorification, and we need to keep that in mind. And we also know that you love us and you've shown us mercy and grace. We know that because of the first advent, we know that because of the promises of the second. And as we consider and we look at these passages today, and we consider and continue to look at why we approach the book of Revelation in the way that we should, very literally. And using scripture to interpret it, I pray that it then helps us as we walk with you and convicts us to use your word in our lives daily and take it very literally because it means something to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, if you do something for me today, we are going to continue this and finish up this third piece of the introduction. I was motivated by this as we... uh, shared in the Lord's Supper last week, and Pastor James led us in this, that I had skipped a few of the whys of why Jesus must return, and one of them I said, I'm going to have to come back to this, and it it just made me think of it as we participated in the Lord's Supper last week. Go to Matthew chapter 26, and we could honestly go to Mark 14 or Luke 22, but we'll just go to Matthew 26, and I want to show you something very quickly that we hear every t- single time as we participate in the Lord's Supper. But I want to show you something and then bring this around. So just as you turn there, and I added this, as you turn there, we're going through these three things. Today we're finishing this up, why we study Revelation from a pre-millennial approach or perspective and last week, we why Jesus must return, Dave jokingly came up and said, well, I'm convinced now Jesus must return. You did a good job, thanks. So I did, I did over, over go, no doubt about it, but we're going to hit one more, and I, I think it's necessary from this perspective. So one more of why Jesus must return, and to set that up, I'd like to look at this real quick. So as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the upper room, Here's what it says. You should be there by now. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it. He broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat this. This is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the key. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So he makes a statement here that this is going to, this is, and this is very real to me, this is a very literal thing, that this is going to be a real Jesus coming back to a real world and establishing a real kingdom in which he will establish his father's kingdom. And, and we will be there with him as believers. He's talking to his apostles. Now as we go forward, there is another passage that connects these dots Here's, here's my point. There was one I skipped, and I want to come back to this. Why Jesus must return, the vindication of Christ demands it. Demands it. You'll also remember in Matthew 26 as you go forward, and since you're there already, go ahead and go forward, to the as we progress through this evening. Actually, it's into the next night. This would have probably been the next, you know, six, seven hours. He is now in, tr- in a trial before the high priest and this conversation takes place and this is what jesus says and i connect these two things what he says to his apostles we're going to do this again in the kingdom there has to be a kingdom and he has to come back and physically eat and drink with them and that's going to physically happen but look at what he says in this trial and remember he doesn't say much in his trials in fulfillment of prophecy he doesn't defend himself and he doesn't need to defend himself But he will, on occasion, say things to put them in their place. And picking this up in context, picking it up at verse 63, you should have it in front of you. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said said so. And you'll notice, and it says here in the NASB, and he says, you have said it yourself. Yeah, you've heard it, you've said it, and, I, and he claims it, and other, of course, we've gone through this already, but he claims it himself. He says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Okay, so he's saying, I am coming back. This is a very humiliating moment in the life of Christ. This night, this day, this, this moment, those six hours on the cross, Uh, It it should get you emotional, what happened to your Savior, on account of your sin and on account of mine. The humiliation that Christ went through, but he says there will be a day when you see me come back in glory. That's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, they knew what he's saying. If you look at the rest of this this event, the high priest tore his clothes, claimed blasphemy. They, they, They issued judgment on him of death they spit at him, they slapped him, they punched him. The humiliation continued. But in the midst of this, Jesus puts in perspective, you will see me again, and I will come in glory. And uh, David Jeremiah has a great quote about this. And here's what he says, and this, this is from his book, What in the World is Going On? Or What in the World is Happening? Revelation message is, is, is too important for us to miss. The gospel... Per- Gospels present Christ's humiliation, his earthly life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And the epistles give glimpses of Christ's coming glory in passages such as Philippians 2, where Paul states that every knee will bow to him one day. However, Revelation reverses Christ's humiliation and reveals him as King of kings and Lord of lords in all his glory. It anticipates the day he takes his rightful place as ruler over all the earth by presenting Jesus Christ in glory. Revelation places a capstone on history. So Jesus has to come back to reverse the events that took place that also had to take place. Isaiah 53 had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled for you and for me. If that didn't happen, if the first advent didn't happen, we wouldn't be saved and we wouldn't be redeemed and we would have no hope. But this also has to happen. He has to be glorified. His vindication has to happen. And that's an important thing, and I thought about that, how the timeliness of of the Lord's Supper last week, and the fact that I had skipped this, I think I I needed to go back to it. Okay, so anyway, I just thank you for letting me do that. I think that's an important aspect of why Christ needs to come back. All right, moving on, you'll know what we ended with last week, the future of Israel demands it. And that's where I did want to end, because it transitions us into what we're going to talk about this week, which is our approach how we're going to study eschatology in general, the study of the end times, the study of the things of the end, and why the premillennial approach perspective is the way we're going to go. Now, how I want to do this, and I I talked to my wife about this, actually my kids too, I got to be careful not to get into the weeds too much. The very first week I introduced this, I said, you know, there are a lot of books about this topic, and you could get buried in them. And I'm afraid I may bury you in a few today. I think I quote maybe five different books today to help us understand and give us a broader view of the way people do approach this. And I think it's good to define some terms. So if you'll bear with me as I define some of these terms, and just as a reminder, when you quote books, when you quote people, they are just people and they are just books. It is this book that you can count on for certain that this is true. So keep that in mind. What I say is, and what my opinion and my approach is fallible. Keep that in mind. It's God's word that really matters. But books and quotes and people smarter than me, maybe not smarter than you, but smarter than me can help us understand things. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. I do think it helps to give us some definitions. So here are the four, and you know, I say four general views. As you study this, as you look into kind of the study of the end. There are more than four, and there are derivatives of each of these four, but this helps us to get a a, a general understanding. So let me give you some of these definitions, very basic definitions. The amillennialist, here's the amillennialist view. The A, or alpha in the Greek language means negative, or without, is another way to say that. So this means they believe that there will be no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. When he comes, everything ends immediately immediately. No kingdom on earth ruled by Christ before he gets here. No kingdom on earth ruled by Christ after he gets here. They believe that the Old Testament promises made to Israel are to be applied to the church. Now, right here, that this is a spiritualization of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. So, believe it or not, this is a very common view. This is a very common interpretation and approach to the book of Revelation and beyond. And as we look at this particular one, this amillennialism, this lends itself to and really connects itself to supersessionism. And supersessionism is really just another way to say replacement theology or fulfillment theology. Some some would call it fulfillment theology because they don't like that term replacement. But those are the same things really, essentially. And what supersessionism is... Is this view that the new testament church what we are right now the church age we're living in Is the new or better or true israel And that those promises as as mentioned in the definition those promises are now applying to us Now keep in mind. There are a lot of promises that apply to you that also apply to israel with regards to salvation Here's a news flash for you. Jews gentiles are all saved the same way You see that over there? Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his blood alone, and that finished work on the cross alone, all given to us in his word alone. Jews, Gentiles, all saved the same way. Okay, so don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. However, there are different programs of history, future history, that God is going to use to bring about the culmination of history with regards to the church and with regards to Israel. Salvation's the same. Okay, so don't don't misunderstand what I am saying. The truth here is, the idea here is that we are somehow the new or better Israel. Uh, Look at your own life. Do you honestly think that you're doing a better job than the Jews of the Old Testament? If so, you've got a very egotistical, arrogant, prideful way of looking at your own life. No, I'm a sinner, chief of them. And I hope that you you understand that. And that's not an excuse to just keep on sinning. But Paul understood that about himself. We need to understand that as well. We're not doing a very good job of this either. Anyway, this definition came from a a, a paper that I came across, and I think this was potentially, and I I didn't look deep enough into it. He's a professor at Masters. Uh, If it was a paper he did for his his Ph.D. work, I'm not sure. But anyway, he gave this good definition or good explanation of this supersessionism. All right, here's a quote from Amir Zarfati. Here's what he says about this. Israel and the church. Israel and the church are two different groups. The former is ethnic, and the latter is spiritual. The two have distinct beginnings, and as we learn in Revelation, they have two distinct culminations. The removal of the church from this world will come at the rapture, and I will discuss that later. The salvation of Israel will come at the second coming of Christ, when all who are left as part of Israel will recognize the one in whom they have pierced and will, as individuals, believe in him as their Lord and Savior. Just <laughs> They get saved the same way. They believe on Christ. What is what that is what was is plain the plain reading of scripture shows the only way to unite the two entities is to set aside exegesis Which is drawing out meaning from the text in favor of allegory and hitting meaning and opinions I love this end statement when that happens and this is important for all of our daily lives Okay, this is really critical on how we approach scripture in everything Set aside the the study of end times This is important for everything and the way you approach Scripture. When that happens, okay, when we allegorize or spiritualize everything, Scripture becomes what I think it should mean. That's dangerous, by the way. What I think it should mean, rather than what it clearly says. The Bible is no longer God's word. Instead, it becomes words that we put into God's mouth. Dangerous game. And so when we talk about the promises of Israel, which we will today, and that's such an important thing. I've mentioned it before, but the tribulation period, the first time we really hear about it in the Old Testament, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Not the church's trouble, Jacob's trouble. This has a lot and everything to do with Israel. All right, so again, I don't want to hang too far on any of these four, but that's the, that's the approach you hear quite a bit. Here's another one, post-millennialism. So a millennium without. This one isn't without, but it's a different view of the millennium. Here's what, it's, here's what this one means. Christ will come after, post, after the millennial kingdom. He will come to earth, but not to establish his kingdom, but rather his kingdom has, has been established after the church has brought about the dominating influence of Christ across the world. So we should be doing that right now. Let's look around and see how we're doing. He will then come and everything, and er, he will then come and end everything and establish the new heaven and a new earth which is the eternal state. This is also spiritualizing of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. Here's a reaction to this. By the way, this book, very in-depth look. Uh, Pastor Kevin gave this to me several weeks ago as we were starting this, but Ben Ware and it's understanding the end times prophecies gives a great definition or explanation of this. This post-millennialism view is built on the unsteady, and I'll bring this up where it's up there, hermeneutic of spiritualization. I'll get to the definition of hermeneutics here in just a moment, so hang in there with what that means. It has unfounded optimism that is not based on realistic views of what has happened over the last 2,000 years or on what is presently going on now. The world is not becoming morally and spiritually better. Would we all concur? With Yeah, I think so. Nor is it becoming dominated by Christianity. <laughs> no doubt about it, it's not. The basic reality, reality forces post-millennialists to place their golden age well, it's not will, well in the future, giving the church plenty of time to shape up and get on with God's kingdom business. Furthermore, this optimism cannot be sustained in light of numerous passages of scripture that we looked at last week. Remember the the idea of why Christ must come back is the moral decline demands it, that as we get closer to the end, Paul tells Timothy, things are going to get worse as we look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonican church we'll look at next week in part that apostasy may, must come first, the falling away has to come first. Anyway, those, that's what he's referencing here, those passages and others. Passages of scripture that speak of growing evil in the end times and the increase in apostasy and false teaching. So this view is generally this. You and I as part of the church, what we're doing is making this place more and more and more like heaven on earth. And as we do that and we finally do it, and by the way, this just shouts in the face of me, 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 or in the face of Jesus does it all and I'm, I'm living by grace. It, it just, it, it's essentially negative to what we all believe. It, it's against what we believe is the way I want to say that because it's us, it's us doing everything. It, it's us accomplishing it with our own will and our own might and, and, and doing God's work, but by our own power and that shouts in the face of what Paul teaches us about how Christian living is. This place isn't getting better. And it, it, I don't care if we go another thousand years, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So that's what this idea is, is that somehow we're bringing about the kingdom. Just think about how crazy that sounds. You bring about the kingdom? I bring about the kingdom? Do you think we really can do that? I don't think so. All right, here's another one. Preterism. Preterism. This is kind of an interesting one, because there are a lot of people who espouse to this too. This definition comes from uh, Ligonier Ministries. Barry Cooper did an article about this, and he lays out probably five or six different versions of preterism. I will not go through those today. We're going to look at two very basic ones. Full preterism, or what we call hyper-preterism, is the belief that all prophecy in Scripture has already happened. Everything prophesied has already taken place. All of it everything we are living in a a kind of a post-miraculous world right now and it's it's a almost a doomsday type scenario but it's all already happened not a whole lot of people would hold to this particular version the word preterism comes from the latin uh, preter which means past as in the prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past what you'll see more is what is called partial preterism this is extremely common and here's what this is wrapped around this is, And I'll read this, and you can see it. This is wrapped around 70 A.D. And what happened in 70 A.D.? Before I even read this, what this is going to require is redating the authorship and timeline of the Scriptures. What we know to be true from archaeology, from, from first person and, and, and historic documentation of who wrote what, And as we go back in time, you've got to redate the writing of the scriptures themselves. But here's what it is. Partial preterism says that prophecies in Daniel, Matthew chapter 24, and Revelation, setting aside the last three chapters, which is what we call the eternal state after the new heaven, new earth, have already been fulfilled. They believe that those prophecies played themselves out in the first century A.D., specifically A.D. 70. So this is when the Romans came in. Jesus prophesied that this would happen, by the way. Even on the way to the cross, he made mention of this, caring so much about the people around him, the women that were mourning for him, professional mourners. And as we think about this, this definitely happened. And, and in Matthew 24, which we will look at as we go through this study, he references this, the destruction of the temple. He references the destruction of Jerusalem. He under, and and there, there's, part of that is true But they will say, a preterist would say that everything Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, everything John was speaking of in Revelation 1 through 20, has already done. It's already been happened. It's already taken place. This is not something that we will experience. So AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. What we have in Revelation, therefore, isn't, isn't a symbolic picture of things yet to be fulfilled. It's a symbolic picture of upheavals and conflicts that happened in the first century. One concrete example, the beast, the Antichrist character that we'll study going forward, spoken in Revelation, they believe, is, is, is Nero. They will even give you how his, his name numbers with 666 and calculates that way. So these have all been fulfilled, and this is all symbolic. So that's preterism. That's and an, I know I apologize for this, the depth of this, but it's important to understand why we're going about it the way we are. Here's what we see about preterism. And this is, um, this was my sentiments, and then I, as I read this, I thought, that's exactly what I was going to say. So we'll just say what he says, because he's smarter than me. Zechariah 14, which we've covered here before, and I've referenced here before, the Lord is seen fighting against those nations that come against Jerusalem, that's 14.3, which did not occur in AD 70, that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back and fight against anybody when the temple was destroyed, that didn't happen. Great signs will accompany this time, including the splitting of the Mount of Olives. When Jesus' foot sets down on the Mount of Olives, I've preached on this once before, it splits in half, actually into threes. If you remember, this is going back three years, but I did a, a study on that, and three different parts is it splits in half in, the, in three different positions. So we, that didn't happen. I'll add to that, he says, in darkness, is mentioned here in 14, 6, and 7, if you add Joel 2 to this argument... And the things that are happening in the stars, in the sky, and that never happened in 70 A.D. These incredible cataclysmic events that we will see happen, or those who are on earth will see happen, those didn't happen in 70 A.D. So, including darkness, which also did not occur in A.D. 70, the end result of all these signs and the Lord's coming will be the security and safety of Jerusalem. Interesting. Let's just think about that today. Is that how Jews who, by the way, are living in unbelief right now, do they feel like they're safe and secure in the moment and in, in this time? Are, are they living as Jesus, as their Messiah? Is, that, is he reigning there? They don't even believe in him. So those things did not happen. They didn't happen, and Israel wasn't in their land for 2,000 years. These things can't be. They weren't fulfilled. When you connect, and, and let me just pause for a moment. This is the danger of taking a single passage, a chunk of it even, and interpreting it in a vacuum without the rest of Scripture. Go back to week one when I I talked about one of the benefits of studying Revelation or studying the entire, is that it requires you to go back into the Old Testament, requires you to go into other Scriptures to seek better understanding or a more thorough understanding, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. When you study Scripture in a vacuum, if you study just Matthew 24 in a vacuum or sections of Revelation in a vacuum, you'll come to conclusions that are not accurate, that are dangerously not accurate because you don't see the full picture. If you don't study Revelation with Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, Matthew, and others, you're not going to get the full view. It isn't just one book or one paragraph. It's the whole wholeness of Scripture, and I think we understand that. Back to this. The reigning of the Messiah over all the earth, none of that which occurred in A.D. 70. Okay, so those things are, that's not the way we're approaching it. Here's how we're approaching this, the premillennial view. And to me, this is the most freeing of all. And here's why, because we read it out how it is. We read the scriptures, how they are presented. Here's what it says, Christ will come after a literal seven-year tribulation, but before the millennial kingdom. At the culmination of the Battle of Armageddon, destroying his enemies, judging the living, and establishing an earthly kingdom, with him reigning from Jerusalem—a little literal interpretation of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. Here's what MacArthur says: He he did it. Uh, we thought about uh, watching this as a, in, a men's breakfast, and we may still do this. Uh, Pastor Kevin mentioned it. I thought it would be a good idea. We never actually did it, unless I missed that one. Um, but in this sermon, I'm taking this as an extra excerpt from his sermon talking about why premillennialism is, is the way we should view things. He makes mention of a time where he was speaking to 1,600 pastors and leaders from Central Asia in an emerging church where, where Christianity was being, was being presented essentially, when we talk about the, 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 the length of history, in a very early state in their growth, and how they're viewing the scriptures when they get them. And here's what he says about this. He's speaking to them about expositional preaching and and premillennial view, and the group that led the conference came to me afterwards, they'd never heard him speak before, with smiles on their faces and said, you believe exactly what we believe. And here's the statement that they made, and I thought this was so cool. This isn't something for people who have been highly educated. This is something for people who haven't been corrupted by education. And, and I, uh, that's a very <laughs> it's a scary thought to think that, that sometimes there's too much. As a te- former teacher, it's a dangerous thing to say. You don't need as much education as you have. But there are times where education can get in your way. And, and here's, a, here's one of the reasons I think these three other views have come to bear in our world today, simple, and and I almost give a pass to some at least eighty years ago, but Israel didn't exist for two thousand years, and good God believed good. There's none of us that are good, but God fearing Christians who believed God's word to be true, believed it would happen, but they couldn't see how it could happen without Israel. So they had to rework this somehow. Okay, this is true. It's got to be true. There is no nation of Israel. We can't see how there ever will be a nation of Israel. So how is this going to be true in another way? But when Israel showed up on the scene, miraculously, in 1948, May 14th, a specific day, who's heard of such a thing, as Isaiah would say? When that happened, it should have changed every textbook that they ever had. That should have, oh, God was serious. Always oh, going to really do this. This is really going to happen. A literal fulfillment. But it's really tough to get rid of tradition. It's really tough. It takes more than 70 years, I think, for for people who have based their entire theology on something that has now been destroyed because of what God did, doing exactly what he said. And I think that part of education can be dangerous, where you, you hold on to something that you spent so much time in and generationally, it, it's hard to get rid of things like that. I think that's why these, these other views are still holding on. Because they existed and, and kind of were contrived and developed before Israel was a nation again. But now that they are, now that they are, throw that out. Let's take a literal look at this because they are back in their land, at least partially. So anyway, he, he goes on to say, I was talking to one of our missionaries just that same week I gave this talk to the pastors and he was coming back from China and he said there's only one view in the church in China this developing church brand new and it's the premillennial view of course because they just take what scripture says and then he says to his congregation I've been teaching and preaching the bible expositionally now for over 40 years one verse at a time I have dragged you th- through virtually every verse in the new testament and all the way we have also just taken the Bible for what it says. And isn't that the way it should be? There's a freedom in that, by the way. There's a freedom in that. He's, he's not trying to fool me. He's not, try, he's not a God of confusion. There is going to be symbolism, and there's going to be some things that, that, that we have to go into deeper study to understand, but generally speaking, to the believer, because you know he knows we're not that bright, he lays it out there for us. Do this. This is who I am. This is how it's going to be. He's not here to confuse us. So a, a new Christian who has the Bible in their hands is not going to go down these other three roads. It's not natural. They're going to say, oh, he says this, he's going to do this. And he, they say that because that's what he's done before. Because that's what they've, done, they've seen him do before. So the premillennial view, as we look at this going forward, we should approach Scripture that same way everywhere. This is called... What I like to say consistent hermeneutics the definition of hermeneutics here And I mentioned that I would define this for you This term from the greek is used to denote the study and statements of the principles on which a text for present purposes The biblical text is to be understood. How do we approach it? Old testament new testament should be the same How we approach this is Is got to be consistent if it's not we're picking and choosing back to our book here the premillennial position is based squarely on a consistent literal hermeneutic, a literal approach to the prophetic scriptures, less one leads one, that should be leads, one to believe that the promises made to Israel have not been fulfilled in the past, not all of them, and are not being fulfilled today, not all of them. This mandates that they be fulfilled sometime in the future to national, national Israel. There are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled that were promised to Israel which means that the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ must be kept distinct. This contrast between Israel and the church is a key to the premillennial position, and it is one of the primary ones that sets it apart from other systems of theology. Here's what MacArthur says about this, and I use this week one for apologetics, but I think it, it lends itself here too. all the prophecies dealing with the first advent of Christ were fulfilled precisely and literally. We go through them very literally. And we use them to defend the faith. And and this is, if you remember the end of this, and I I won't read the whole thing, he goes through Isaiah 53 and hits these marks. Look at the end of this quote. In some cases, Old Testament prophecies about Christ were fulfilled with literalism that could not have been anticipated by even the most careful Old Testament scholars. That's the same trap that people fall in today. Those Old Testament scholars, Old Testament prophets said, how could this be exact? How could the Messiah be crucified? How could his hands and feet be pierced? How could he die? How could he be humiliated? How could this happen? It must not be that. And that's what the struggle was with so many of these learned Pharisees and and scribes and Sadducees. They thought they knew better. and, And they couldn't see it because they didn't take it literally. They thought it must be symbolic. And that's the same thing that we see here. We now look at this in retrospect and say, oh, it was all very literal. Bethlehem was literal. Coming out of Egypt was literal. This is, these, these miracles that he had to perform as the Messiah, they were all literal. His crucifixion was literal. His apostles betraying him were literal. This all had to happen. We look at that now in retrospect, but we need to do the same thing going forward. And so I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. So if the prophecies about Israel in the Old Testament have not yet been fulfilled, we need to look at God's character real quick. And I think this one really helps nail this down. To me, it always has. This is my go-to passage. When I am, and I have been a few times, believe it or not, I can be argumentative with people. Sometimes I get into a debate here and there with others that, that do what I do. And Jeremiah 31 is my go-to passage. This is our New Covenant passage. Now, this this is what brings us in, but this is all about Israel, too. And I'll tell you, specifically, it's the nation Israel. So if you're in Jeremiah chapter 31, I want to take a look at this. The New Covenant is established. I'd like to pick this up, though, about verse 34. i have got 35 up there, but here's what he says. Speaking of the future. And this is, you're going to see how this specifically relates to Israel. We're, relate, we're involved, okay? The new covenant is, is what we embrace. This is part of salvation. Salvation comes to Israel too. But look at what he says about the nation Israel. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Jews, Gentiles, the world, this is future yet. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's to the Jew and to the Gentile who by grace through faith believe in Christ as their Savior. That is is for all of us. But look at how it transitions. This is my go-to and this should be all of us. Thus says the Lord, now he's getting specific now, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar the Lord of hosts is his name. So let's just establish who we're dealing with. I think that gives us a little understanding of who says this. Who's the thus says the Lord? The creator of the universe who breathed out stars. That, that guy, okay? The one who controls all of history and directs your steps. Who saved you and by his will sent his son and crushed him for you. Who resurrected him as well three days later. That God is who's speaking here. Okay, so we got a perspective. Verse 36, if this fixed order, his fixed order, the one he created, the God of the universe created this fixed order, departs from before me, it won't, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation. That is not the church. This is specifically national Israel before me forever If I stop everything I've created, then they won't be a nation anymore. He's trying to tell you, I'm not going to stop it, okay? That's not going to happen. He doubles down. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, ask yourself, can they be measured? No. And the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Can they? No. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for for all that they have done declares the lord he's not going to outcast or declare israel no longer his he won't do it he's trying to tell you he won't do it in light of the new covenant he won't do it the new covenant includes you no doubt about it but the new covenant also includes israel and they will come to repentance this is a important thing so when we look at all those other views especially the amillennialist view which is very common amongst preachers that you would like, I won't name names, but amongst a lot of preachers that you would like, and I do too. And I'm not telling you not to listen to them, I do, and learn from them. But I think they're wrong about this. I really do. I think they're wrong about this because we have a God who keeps his promises. We have a God who does what he says he's going to do and then does it. And there is no other entity, there is no other being, there is no other power in the world that does that. You don't and I don't. And that, that is a God that we count on, that we have to count on. This is what we do. Now, very quickly, because we're running out of time, as always, Israel's coming back. And I put these uh, up here. This is Tommy Ice, Dr. Tommy Ice, uh, was a professor at Liberty. Uh, I had to read a few papers, when, took a few classes there from him. But he is the director of uh, premillennial studies there, <laughs> which is kind of... I know that's kind of loading the deck, but um, he talks about this and gives us, and I'm using two resources for this. Israel today, the big argument is, well, they're all non-believers. I agree. I agree. But that was prophesied. He would bring them back so that he could bring them into judgment. We won't take the time to look at these, but all of these passages speak of Israel coming back and not believing in the Messiah yet and him bringing them into judgment into this time of Jacob's trouble, that he'll bring them through the fire and that will break them. So they will come back in unbelief and that's, that's happened today. That's already begun to happen. This miracle of 1948, and it is, this is something that's setting the stage. Now we don't know what, what the timeline is gonna be like that. It's very difficult to pinpoint any way to say that, well, because that happened here and you'll hear people say, well, it's a generation because of what Christ says uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, I, I don't subscribe to that. That's very difficult to set a stage or timeline for this. But this is definitively changing things. This is setting the clock. This is, this is starting to have the clock tick because Israel is the key to this. But they're going to come back in unbelief just like we see today. They also will come back in belief. And that clearly is at the second coming. And what he says about this and this one I'll read and and then we'll look at a a quick little chart that I've brought up from another book. Many passages in the Bible speak of Israel's regathering in belief at the end of the tribulation in conjunction with Christ's second coming in preparation for commencement of the millennium. And not just Israel. Uh, The sheep of the goat's judgment, which we'll look at in Matthew 25, it brings in all the nations. It's called the, the judgment of the nations as well, but that would include, in part, Jews that have come in and put their faith in Christ, these references are not being are not being fulfilled in the modern state of Israel. They they don't believe in Jesus. This is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. The tribulation, in part, in part, remember, we looked at the reasons why Christ is coming and why this is going to happen. In part is to humble Israel, national Israel. And we've also studied in the past this incredible moment, and we'll just briefly look at it today, where nearly all of the nation of Israel will put their faith in Christ. An incredible thing where God bestows his grace on them. But just a real quick breakdown, and this is from Jerusalem and Prophecy by Price. I want to say this was like 98 maybe published. But just a, a quick chart I, I grabbed from there. Israel's two regathering. They're going to return to, the, to part of the land. That's true today. If you look at it, and we just don't have time today to do this, but if you look at the biblical understanding of, of what the, the promised land is, Israel right now is only in a fraction of what was promised to Abraham, only a fraction of it, just a little bit of it. They will be returned to all the land someday. The millennial kingdom, Israel will have exactly what was promised to Abraham. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And it's never been seen. Israel's never had the land that was promised to them. Not even in David's time did they have the extent that was promised to Abraham. We don't have time to get into that, but that's going to happen. They will return in unbelief, and then they will return in faith. Grace will be bestowed. We'll quickly look at that today. Restored to the land only, that's today, that's today. But restored to the land and to their Messiah, that's in the future. That's what we're anticipating. That's what the tribulation is so much about. Certainly to bring judgment on the world, but to bring Israel to its knees. And then sets the stage for the tribulation, that's where we're at right now. They're they're going to be disciplined, but then that sets the stage for the millennium when they come back in that. The end of the tribulation so you kind of understand those two things this jewish repentance is real now here's what we see there are we can't start looking at jews gentiles and say well we got it and they didn't you realize that every original christian was jewish all of the all of the first ones were the apostles the thousands that came to faith in christ after the resurrection and after pentecost all jewish people so it's not Jews versus Gentiles, that it's somehow only us that are getting, uh, getting saved today. As a matter of fact, I quoted Amir Sarfati, who is a, a Jewish man living in, outside of Jericho right now, and he believes in Jesus. There are many others like that, these Messianic Jews. But although some Jews will and have currently put their faith in Jesus, there aren't that many. There just aren't. And living in Jerusalem right now, or in and around Jerusalem, or Israel as a whole, you're talking 90% aren't, over 90%, well over. It's hard to get an exact number. So there are some who will put their faith in Christ. But here's a quick understanding of this, prophetically, how God's gonna do this, how he intends to do this. Number one, a partial hardening. That's Romans 11. That, th- th- this is something Paul discussed. A Jew himself, a Jew of Jews. Paul, Paul will tell you he, he was a very good Jew. And he he had such a heart for his Jewish people, and this one always shocks me. He talks about the fact that if he could give up his own salvation for them, he, he almost would. That's a tough one. I'm not sure I'd ever make that statement. But he had such a love for his brethren that he wanted them to be saved, that if there was some way he could do that, he can't. But there's a partial hardening. And then God foretelling and then implementing this time of discipline, this time of Jacob's trouble. I'd like to look at that here in just a second. This time of distress in the chapter just before in Jeremiah chapter 30, if you're still there, I don't know if I've taken you anywhere since then, so you might still be there. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says this, For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness. Oops, that's chapter 31. I knew that didn't sound right. Uh, Alas, the day is so great, and there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. There's going to be this time, and Daniel gives us the numbers It's where we get the structure of that seven years. Actually, even by day, Daniel will do this for us as we go forward. The first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. This time of Jacob's trouble, this time of distress, Ezekiel says the same thing. And this is part of the process that God takes them through. And as I sit here and talk about this, and you look at this, it's not unlike our salvation, is it? Really, if you think about it. We talk about all the time how God has to bring us to the end of ourselves, doesn't he? Because if you still, if you, if you still approach the word of God and you approach the throne of grace with pride or your good works, you're not saved and you're not getting saved. It isn't until you're broken and he breaks you and he does this. God does this. You got saved because God did that to you. He broke you And then he built you back up. He's now given you a new heart and you are a new creature, right? We know all these things. We embrace them. That's what's going on here. As a nation, he's going to use the tribulation to do this, the time of Jacob's trouble. And through this time of difficulty, we see, and we'll look at this later on. I won't get into that detail now. He'll use these selected Jewish young men, 144,000, two witnesses. We'll talk about that later. Angel even, proclaiming the gospel. Other believers, the, the word of God itself to save delivering the gospel by the way that's what they're going to do just like we do today and they're going to hear it and they're going to believe but it's going to they're going to get to the end of themselves so this currently we see this partial hardening that's what's going on now and we don't have time to look at all this but this current moment in time that paul speaks of is what's happening but he doesn't disregard them they're enemies for your sake now but as regards to election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers they will be saved There will be a time where that's coming. And then currently, right now, we know that there are people who are getting saved that are believers that are Jewish. That happened when Peter delivered his sermon. That happens today. It's awesome. God saves Jews today. But in the future, near future, these passages are going to be fulfilled. They're going to go through difficulty. And as a nation, they're going to get broke. And God's going to bring them to the end of themselves. And that's what we see. This repentance is coming in the near future. Why I say near? Because... In the culmination of history, even if it's a thousand years from now, I don't know, that's still near future when you talk about eternity, but God is going to do this, what we read and what we will read in Daniel 12, there will be a moment where God brings them through the ringer and they will cry out to their Lord, an incredible thing that will happen. And these two things, we just don't have time to look at them today, this time of their repentance in the near future, we really see an articulation of this in Ezekiel and in Zephaniah. These slides will be on the website, so you can take a look at them. But these two passages, you look at them. You're going to see the detail of this very clearly here. And I think that this is really an important understanding. Christ's lament. Look at what he says. And I'll end with this for the sake of time. Christ's heart for the people of Jerusalem. And his heart for you, by the way, because this extends to every believer in the future. Christ's lament over Jerusalem. Here's what he says. He looks over at at Jerusalem. Notice this is Matthew 23. As we're looking at this, getting near to the end, where he is going to die for the sins of many. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he is hearkening back to Zechariah's passage, Zechariah 12, where they finally get it, where they finally understand it. I said I'd end with this one, but this is the the true end. This timeline of the repentance happens when grace is bestowed upon them. Notice it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. Why will Jerusalem cry out, Israel cry out to God for mercy? Because grace is bestowed upon them. Why did you cry out for mercy? And, and put your faith in Christ because grace was bestowed upon you when he put you through the ringer. Whatever that was, I don't know. Your testimony is your testimony. But you came to that conclusion. God brought you to that point that I can't do this. I'm a sinner and I'm going to hell and I know it and I deserve it. God brought you to that. And then he, by grace, saved you through faith. He's going to do that to them because we have a God who promises things and then backs them up and does them. And he will always do that. So you see why we need to approach this very literally because God says he's going to do it and he's going to do it. And we know that that's true. If it isn't true, you're still in your sins. Cuz he could renege on his his promise to you. His covenant to you may not be true because, you know, you're not that great either. You're just like Israel. As a matter of fact, I'm worse. I'm worse. So when we approach this, we have to understand this is, this is God's Word. It's not our Word, and we let Him interpret it. So next week, we're going to finally get into Revelation chapter 4, but you're now going to understand why I'm going to approach this very literally. There's going to be symbolism, and it'll define that for us. There's going to be some spiritualization that'll define that for us in Scripture. It's gonna, we're going to use Scripture to help us understand that. But I'm going to take this. I think, I think what we're about to read is really going to happen. That's exciting, and it's terrifying. And for the believer, it's motivating, right? That's, that's going to be the key here. It's going to be motivating for you and I to do what we can in the moments that we have before all of this actually begins to take place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you for the consistency of it. We thank you that you are a promise keeper. We thank you that you sent your son that first time for what we desperately needed, because sin was the biggest problem sin is the biggest problem and you get that solution and sin and death have been destroyed and those of us in here who have put our faith in your son we know that we have security and certainty of eternity we also pray for the nation of israel right now we know that they are in this time that is gathering in in a time of unbelief approaching this time of discipline that you're going to put them through but it's going to end with glory because you're going to save so many of them. And so many are going to understand that didn't for generations that your son is truly their Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And we look forward to this moment where we see you face to face. We thank you for the program of the, of the church. We thank you for the promises of the millennial kingdom that have benefits to both the Jew and the Gentile. We thank you for the eternal state that is yet to come after that. The glory that is, is intertwined in all of that that belongs solely to you. We thank you for that, that that you have saved us, that we can be a part of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.